this episode, we'll talk through no-code user interfaces. These are interfaces you use to create programmatic logic without writing code. You've seen these things before. Some simple examples might be, say, filter rules in your email, where if an email comes in from a certain domain, you make a rule such that that email would then be filtered into a certain folder. Another example might be spreadsheets. You might have a rule where if a cell is higher than, say, 50%, the background would highlight green or something like that. At the moment, I have two different projects that involve a no-code component. However, the no-code aspect has been significantly reduced in scope for both projects. The reason? It was deemed as being just too complex. We'll talk about the interesting reasons why in this episode. In this show, I take design problems and generalize them to relatable examples to introduce you to the concept of complexity. This is the design of complex things. This episode is really hard to record because I have so much to say about the topic. I have 20 minutes to do it, and I don't want to just rapid-fire bark opinions and observations at you. All right, well, we'll just begin at the beginning. So you may have seen interfaces that allow you to build programmatic logic using puzzle piece-like blocks instead of writing code as text into a text editor. The Scratch project at MIT, for example, uses draggable on-screen blocks that you fit together to make small programs. This is all to teach kids how to code. And Google has the Blockly project that allows you to build and extend your own blocks, and it essentially does the same thing. In fact, I think the MIT Scratch project uses the Blockly library. But it's not just for kids. Code language builders and programmatic UIs like this exist for creating databases and apps and voice apps, all kinds of stuff. All these code building systems fall under the umbrella term of no-code solutions. So who exactly is the user of these systems if it's not developers? Well, the research firm Gardner has defined what they call a non-developer user as a citizen developer, quote, citizen developer. They say it's a user who creates new business applications for consumption by others using development runtime environments sanctioned by corporate IT. That's just off their website. It's become big. Some people think it's the future of software building where end applications are built by people who don't really know traditionally syntax programming languages and developers who write code are relegated to creating no code environments and platforms for these citizen developers. The problem with that vision of the future is that programming isn't really about learning the syntax of a programming language. It's about problem solving with iterators and states and selections and interrupts and on and on. As I see it, the real hurdle to no-code system adoption is bridging the confusing gap between natural language and computer language with design. As we dig into this topic, we're going to talk about three different concept areas. Natural language and how the conventions of natural language shape our thinking. Programmatic logic. There are two main types of programmatic logic that are used in no-code UIs. Then we'll talk about the builders themselves, those interface conventions where we build programmatic logic. Natural language might seem like a strange place to start this discussion, but 
We spend our lives parsing natural language to decode meaning, and it shapes the way we think and how we solve problems. It even shapes how we think about simple logic. So for a basic example, let's just talk about the casual use of the logical terms and versus the logical term or. So for this example, let's say that we have a database of images, and it's images of all sorts of things, dogs and cats and bicycles and apples, etc. If it's an image of a dog, it has the tag dogs. If it's an image of a cat, it has the tag cats. If it's an image that has both dogs and cats in it, it has both tags. Our natural language tends to focus on the results of logic, not the particulars of logic that yield those results. In fact, we use casual spoken logic that is completely different from the actual logic at play. So here are some examples. If I said, give me images of dogs and cats, if I coded that, I would only be getting images that were tagged with dogs and images that were tagged with cats, meaning that I'd only get images that had both dogs and cats in them. But what I was really looking for, the results that I was after, was a pile of images that had dogs, cats, or both in them. If I instead said, give me images of dogs or cats, and you logically coded that, I would end up with a result set that had images of dogs, images of cats, and images of both. However, it's likely that what I was really looking for in that case is that I wanted images of dogs or images of cats, but not both. Or logic is more complicated in spoken English than and logic, so we tend to use clarifying words like both and neither in order to resolve ambiguities. It gets even more complex if we move the word order around. Imagine if I said, give me dog and cat images. I might be looking for images that only had dogs and cats in them, but I don't want images that have just dogs or just cats in them. But it's a little ambiguous, it's kind of unclear. We also tend to think about logic with infix operation. So we think x plus y, x times y, x and y. We don't put it at the front, like and xy plus xy times xy. That's referred to as Polish notation in computer lingo. We also don't put it at the end. We don't say xy and, xy times, xy plus. That's referred to as reverse Polish notation. I'm not making this up. You should go look it up. However, a common convention of code builders is that you'll have a block shaped like a C, and that'll be like an AND block or an OR block, and then you put other blocks inside of it that would constitute our X and Y blocks. So you'd imagine that there's like an X block and a Y block, and they're shoved inside of an AND, and what that would mean is X and Y. That starts to look just like Polish notation to users because they read it from like, you know, outside, inside, left to right. It's really confusing for them. It's hard to wrap your head around that kind of logic, particularly as soon as you start nesting them, if you put an OR block inside of an AND block. So you'd see AND, X, OR, Y, or Z. In fact, when I just said it just then, I infixed the second OR so that you'd understand really what I was talking about. That's how confusing it gets. The last natural language concept I'll talk about is the ambiguity associated with linear chaining. So think about a case you're at a restaurant and they have a soup and salad or a soup and sandwich. 
So what we tend to do is we tend to break in our natural language these, these kinds of logic into pairs. So we would say soup and salad or soup and sandwich. If you represented that more programmatically, you might say something like soup and salad or sandwich. So you get the soup and then you get the salad or the sandwich with it. However, in programming languages, there's a precedence of a logical and being just worth more or higher in precedence than a logical or for exactly the reason of reducing the ambiguity in the chaining. Because suppose that we set it as soup and salad or sandwich. If there's no order between the and and the or, you may get soup and salad or you just get a sandwich. You don't get the soup and sandwich that you actually wanted. But in our natural language, we don't have an order of operations between concepts like and, or, both, neither, not, or even is. So instead of chaining logic, we unpack it into those unambiguous chunks, like our soup and salad pairs. But in no-code UIs, that's the thing you're doing. You're mostly chaining logic together, and you're doing so in this counterintuitive sort of way that isn't your logical pairs that you're used to in casual language. So if we think about the types of programmatic logic that's used in no-code UIs, there's, there's two main types. The first is if-then logic. Imagine if I have like a customer service request form and there's a drop-down and it says, is this a technical issue? Is it a, you know, is it a customer service issue or something like that? And then I could, um, based on the option that the user selects, I would route it to the appropriate team. If issue is of type IT, route to IT team. The other kind of logic that's common in no-code UIs is queries, where I select and filter to achieve a certain data set. So imagine that I'm trying to find, say, all the parts needed to uh, build a particular medical device, but I only want the parts that are made by a certain vendor, so I could create a purchase order for all of those particular parts. So I would take all of the parts that were required to build a medical device, and then I would filter down to just the ones created by some vendor. It's common for these two forms of logic to work together, where I want to cull a large data set down to a particularly filtered subset, and then I want to perform some if-then logic on that. So imagine that we have a manufacturing company, for example, and this manufacturing company has several locations, and they have employees that have different skills. Some have the skill of welding, and they have some projects that require that skill. And in fact, they have two projects. There's project A and project C. And what they want to do is they want to say for each of these employees, if they have employees that have extra time during the week and they're close enough to their facility that they could go and make use of that time without detracting from the rest of their workday, we want to go and send those people to those projects. So the logic might sound something like this. If we end up with at least 25 welders with a free three hours a week, send them to the closest project A. But if there's more than 50 of them, split them between projects A and C. But let's not even worry about people more than a three hour drive from their local facility. I won't go through all the logic that makes that work. That's actually the example that I used when I created my prototype for this episode. So you can actually just go and see how it all fits together and, and mess around with it and swap it around. And you can see the ins and outs of how it works and how it maybe it's a little difficult to understand in some places. But what I really want to point out is that it's 
fairly easy to parse from what I'm saying when I just speak the logic because we've grown accustomed to a certain kind of problem formatting and a particular logic language to communicate it. So I use the phrase end up with to suggest a prior process with a result. I use the term welders to identify employees that had the welding skills regardless of what their real role or title was. I use the phrase send them inferring a process of assignment to a project and I use the term split them suggesting a routing of employees from project A to project C but not both. The natural language statement of the logic is a lot more compact for those reasons than the resulting you know, Blockly model that you see that I built. So I have a couple projects going on right now that involve no-code building UIs. In both cases, some team had a spreadsheet-based solution that the dev team is now porting into a proprietary app. So how it usually starts is that some internal customer group wants to bulk upload data via CSV or Excel file, or even JSON, to the company's proprietary software. So I have a client with an internal customer that exports data, plops it into Excel, runs crazy data routines on it, then shapes it all into a correctly formatted JSON object so they can select all the cells and copy them into a text file and then re-upload it into the system. So their current no-code system is Excel which is very limiting when it comes to creating functional programming logic. Eventually, they want to make better use of cloud and remote data, so they want their no-code Excel-based app plugged into the system for real instead of limping along with bulk data uploads. So interestingly, where it always goes next is they want to translate between a no-code version of the logic in the, in the app and a text-based version of it. Let's call that round tripping. So I would convert the block version to a text version and then I would make some changes in the text version and then flip it back to the block version. So the question is like why would you possibly want to do this? The particulars that are changed in the text version might not be human readable, like they could be barcode IDs, employee numbers, or system timestamps. So users switch to the text mode to copy and paste the logic into a text file and then they'll find and replace individual parts and then copy and paste it back, switch to the no-code mode to then use the, the settings and the drop-down menus and the blocks in order to adjust larger scale logic. Another version of why they might want to do this and make updates in text is that the text representation is typically a lot more compact on the screen. So it's easier to double check values than it is in the larger puzzle piece like block representation of the logic and the data. If you signed up for the mailing list, you'll have access to the Blockly prototype that I created for this episode. Go sign up if you haven't, you'll see some of the issues that I'm about to talk through. So in building my Blockly prototype, that I have here. I took that welding example where we want to take employees from many facilities and if they have that welding skill set and they have unspoken for time for the week and they're close enough to their facility, we want to split them between projects A and C or if there's just not that many of them, just assign them to project, project A. So in looking at this, the very first decision I made is that the core block 
that is going to compose and you know, house all the logic has three input areas. It has a data input area, it has a condition input area, and then there's a result. In the data input area, I have an OR block nested in there. And then inside of the OR block, I have three different blocks and they represent employees from the various facilities. But essentially, it's the same block. It's an employee's block and it has three options in a dropdown on the block. So I have alpha base, beta facility, and gamma site. So the first decision that you can see there is that I have created an, an employee's block that just has options that allows me to select where they came from. In the condition area, I have some of the logic. And this is the filter logic that I talked about before. Remember where I was saying that you filter and then you get down to some if-then logic. So the filter component I have here is plugged into the condition. I have an and block that has a, uh, a clause block. We might call it a clause because it's you know x equals y. So right now it's skill set equals welding. And then it also has a block attached to it. It's the same block. It's just that it has different parameters selected on it. It's available hours is greater than three per week. Then I have an OR block. And I did this so that you could see the nesting issue of ANDs and ORs. And inside the OR block, it just has that same, that same clause block. It's just that instead of skill set or available hours a week, now it's set to distance from facility and it's greater than 130 miles. And then I have the um, employee transit type equals rapid. So you can read the logic to kind of parse out what this means, but essentially I've used a core block type. I've used an AND and an OR. I've used a clause, and then I have the employee block type. In the result section of the core block, I now just have if-then logic. And it all culminates to the then part where there's an action block. And the action block is just one action block, and it has two different methods on it. There's assigned a project, and then you can select what it is. Or you can select multi-assigned a project, and then you can select projects A and C. There's two high-level concepts that are worth puzzling out here. Right now, we have ands and or blocks that are organized in a postfix kind of way, that Polish notation. That makes them hard to parse. If they could be redesigned to fit in an infix sort of way, it would be easier to parse. However, I think it would also be harder to fit on the screen just visually. So that's, that's the first issue. The second one has to do with the number of blocks. With very few blocks, like so only a couple block types, your ability to generalize your logic to a number of different um, practical applications is really high. It's easy to do that. Although, the more specific that the block types are, like for example, if I had a specific block type for assigning to project A, and then a specific block a completely different kind of block for multi-assigning, it allows me a little bit more flexibility in how I would handle both of those processes. And I might even be able to read the logic a little bit more intuitively. However, it makes it completely specific to this one use case, so it's not generalizable anymore. That's a pretty tough design problem to think through. And you're probably going to be rethinking it for every individual case that you run into where you want to use this kind of design solution. There's a lot of hype around no-code platforms. 
Forbes magazine, Inside Big Data, and others estimate the total revenue generated by low-code and no-code platforms to hit $187 billion by 2030. With so much no-code hype and market evaluation, it's surprising that it's not more of a hotbed for design activity. Well, I have two hunches for why that is. One, design is synonymous with thinking about it, yet by the time a solution is built in a spreadsheet and being actively used in the course of business, the thinking about it has already been done. So now folks just want to fold it into the company's proprietary system. They don't feel like they need designers to figure anything out. My second hunch is that even though there are some serious design issues to think through if you're developing a platform as a service, no-code solution, that teams are still going to be slow to include design because I think the conception is that designers don't have enough technical know-how to contribute real value to a dev team, particularly when design guidance could have fundamental impacts on really low-level function of the system. Designers don't typically play that role on a dev team. I'd like to leave you with a thought. Think about all of the numbers that sum to the number 20. So if you just enumerated them all, you'd say, well, it's 19 and 1, 18 and 2, 17 and 3, on and on and on. So if you do the math out, there's 10 of them. Now imagine putting them in a table. So there's 10 rows to this table. Now let's say we're going to catalog all the numbers that uh, multiply to 20. So that would be 1 and 20, and be 4 and 5, and 2 and 10. So imagine what we want to do is we would like to take the numbers that multiply, so say 4 and 5 multiplied to 20, and we want to remove those numbers from all the cases where they would be a part of a set of numbers that sum to 20. So that would be 4 and 16, 5 and 15. We'd remove those two cases from our total of 10 leaving us with eight. If there's only 13 rows, you could just do this by hand. Like it's not too difficult to do with just 13 rows, but what if it's not? What if it's 200,000 rows? Now it becomes impossible to do in a manual fashion, just in a table. You need some programmatic logic to help you with this problem. So the Blockly version of this, the no-code solution, is actually pretty straightforward. It's just a block that represents an exclusive OR that does this logic for you, and there's a block that represents the numbers that sum to 20, a block that represents the numbers that multiply to 20, and you shove them both right inside that exclusive OR block, like that C-shaped, just like that AND OR block we discussed before, and it just filters out all the logic for you. So you might be wondering, like, why would you ever want to do this? Like, what is this uh, incredibly complicated case? Well, imagine that the cases where the numbers are summing to 20 are the examples of where a certain um, set of symptoms were found in a medical case. And the, ca and the cases where they have multiplied were the instances where a certain diagnosis was given on the back of those same symptoms as they were found. And you'd want to go and find all the cases where someone had these symptoms, but there was no diagnosis. So it's like a meta-analysis kind of case. This pattern of design and being able to identify programmatic logic and symbolically edit these very large-scale problems is amazing. It's groundbreaking. You can do incredible stuff with it. So long as you can get past the reluctance that users have 
to engage with it at all for these reasons that I'm talking through about it being just really counterintuitive to think about programmatic logic in these language kinds of ways. There's so much more I wanted to say about this, but we're out of time. Maybe with enough interest, there'll be a part two. If you haven't signed up for the mailing list yet, go to complexthings.design and do it. I drop pre-show details and ideas, I pose questions, and I link to little code experiments like the one discussed in this episode. It's all in the emails. And finally, if you like this podcast, reach out to me and say so. You can find me on Twitter at at do complex things. That's at D-O complex things. 